Well, uh, if there's anyone here that doesn't know me, I'm Slade Reinhardt. I'm the director of Grow and Connect Ministries here at Fellowship Bible Church. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. I'm going to be reading through verse 20. Hebrews 6, 13. You can either uh, follow along in your own uh, Bible or, or it'll also be on the screen here in just a second. All right, Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. For people swear by something. Oh, excuse me, I skipped a verse, didn't I? And thus Abraham, <clears throat> and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Well, uh, to, to set the stage for this, uh, I want to tell you a brief story. Uh, and by the way, you'll, uh, I'll get into this in just a second, but I realized once I started this that the last time I preached, my opening story also involved a uh, voyage on sea and a ship getting stuck in ice. But that won't always be the case. It just so happened this one was very apt for the, for the uh, passage that we just read. So the picture you see on the screen is uh, British explorer Henry Hudson. And uh, he led a number of successful voyages and exploring different parts of the world. And in 1610, he led a ship called Discovery to the frozen waters of Canada in an attempt to find a new route to Asia from, from uh, Great Britain. Well, the explorers did succeed in locating Hudson Bay, which, of course, it wasn't Hudson Bay at the time. It's later named Hudson Bay in Hudson's honor. Uh, they did succeed in, in locating that bay, but their ship became stuck in ice. So this is where we get the uh, uh, allusion to la uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, whatever it was. Uh, the ship became stuck in ice, which forced them to spend a very treacherous winter on land, because obviously if it's cold enough for the bay to freeze, you know it's a pretty cold winter. Uh, Brad Wooden knows all about those. Where's Brad? You ever, Brad, you ever walk on frozen water? It's good. Okay. <laughs> well, of course, the winter was very difficult. <clears throat> Supplies were running short. They had to ration food, that kind of thing. And so by the time the ice melted and they were able to get back on the ship and continue the voyage, it was now 1611. They had they'd waited several months, of course, for everything to thaw out. By the time they were ready to go again, the morale of the crew was just in the pit. Not only were they, they wearied from all the hardships and the difficulties, but in addition to that, they felt that Hudson was playing favorites and that maybe he was hoarding food and therefore getting more rations than they were getting. 
Well, uh, Hudson was, of course, determined to go on. He wanted to continue searching for his passage, but his crew at this point decided enough was enough. And so they were uh, desperate to return home, and they revolted. There was a mutiny. Uh, they commandeered the ship, and they took Hudson and his son and seven other sailors, put them on a small boat in the ocean, and they abandoned them in the Hudson Bay. And Hudson and these men were actually never seen again. But the point of the story is this. These men were following their captain, Henry Hudson, to a destination. They were thinking he was going to lead them to find a passage to India from Great Britain. And over time, because of the hardships that they faced, because of the difficulties, and of course because of some of his questionable decisions, they lost their trust in him. And so they ultimately decided, you know, it would be better to abandon this captain because I don't think he's going to get us to our destination and go back to what we know, go back home. Well, that is exactly the case that the book of Hebrews is talking about in this passage specifically. It is talking about people who are, because of difficulties, because of trials, because of doubts, being tempted to abandon their captain, Jesus Christ, and return to what was familiar, in their case, Judaism. The... Uh, <clears throat> Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is in the spiritual realm, the same thing happens in the physical realm. So to think about your own experiences. Think about the times that you've been through long and enduring trials. Think about the times that, that doubt has really just swelled up within you uh, like a rising storm. Maybe you were angry or disappointed that the Lord didn't do what you expected him to do. Or, or maybe uh, sadness and pain just fueled your doubt that ultimately maybe Jesus isn't going to lead me home. Ultimately, maybe Jesus isn't going to save me. Whatever the reason may be, whether you're in that or you have been in it, whatever the reason may be, the Lord's word in this passage will reassure you in your faith in Christ. Now, before I get to the passage, I do want to remind you of the three primary rules of biblical interpretation. They are context, context, and context. Always pay attention to the context. Now, in this case, first, I want you to think about the context of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians. Uh, from what we can gather, it was written to Jewish Christians to warn them against apostasy because they were being tempted to renounce or abandon their faith in Christ and, and return to Judaism. So this book was written to warn them against that and to draw them back to Christ as well. Now, some of the people in the writer's target audience were probably what we call today nominal Christians. And that's someone who hasn't actually put their faith in Christ, but they have publicly claimed to be a Christian or publicly joined themselves to believers. John MacArthur describes these people as intellectually convinced, but spiritually uncommitted. Someone whose faith is just something that's on their lips, but not truly in their heart. Now, both the nominal Christians and the sincere Christians were facing persecution and hostility from their fellow Jews because, as you know, by and large, Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah, and so they absolutely hated to see fellow Jews embrace Jesus as Messiah, so they would ostracize them and alienate them and persecute them wherever they could. <clears throat> So they were tempted to go back to Judaism, either out of a desire to make things easier, well, at least my, my uh, brother Jews will not be persecute, persecuting me anymore, or they were tempted to go back to Judaism out of a doubt that 
Christ truly is going to save us. Christ truly is going to deliver us. So that is the book context. And now I'll just say a few words about the immediate context. Now, as you'll notice in verse 13, it begins with the word for. So he's giving a reason. He's saying, this is the reason for what I just said. So the previous paragraph ended this way. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He wants the readers to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He's urging them to persevere in their faith in Christ. And that sentence ended referring to those who through faith and patience obtained the promises. So today's passage begins with an example of someone who inherited the promises through faith and patience. <clears throat> and the overall thrust of this paragraph is to give us reason or motivation to persevere in trusting Christ. Now, as I mentioned before, hard, hard times do the same things to us that they did to first century believers. They push us toward doubting the Lord. They push us to drift away from him. So you and I need to hear this word to persevere just as much as they did. So let's get back to verses 13 to 20. The writer, and, and by the way, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews was, so that's why you'll hear me just refer to the writer very often instead of a name. The writer of Hebrews gives us three reasons to persevere in our faith in Christ, three reasons to keep on trusting in the Lord. The first reason is this. God kept his promise to Abraham. God kept his promise to Abraham. When you're trying to prove someone's trustworthiness, one of the things you will do is give an example of how they showed themselves to be trustworthy in the past. And that's exactly what the Spirit of God does. Remember that the previous passage <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> ended by saying, be imitators of those who through faith and patience obtain the promise. So now the Spirit's going to say, let me give you an example of where that happened, not only to imitate him, but to show you, yes, God is indeed trustworthy. Now, as you know, Abraham was the father of the Jewish people, both ethnically and religiously. And Romans 4 tells us that Abraham is the father of everyone who believes, everyone who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Abraham is a perfect example for both Jews and Gentiles to show God's faithfulness. Look with me again at verses 13 to 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham obtained the promise through, through patience. What was this promise? Well, he quotes it, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. In fact, more literally, and I think uh, the King James Version may put it this way, more literally it says, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. Now that was a Hebrew way of emphasizing the verb. So it's almost like he was saying, Surely I will superabundantly bless you, and I will superabundantly multiply you. Uh, yeah, multiply you. And then we have this very odd statement that God swore by himself. God swore by himself when he made this promise. He swore that he would fulfill it. Why? Why did God swear by himself? Well, verse 13 partly answers that. At least it tells us why it was by himself that he swore and not by Zeus or someone else. 
It says that he had no one greater by whom to swear. So therefore, he had to swear by himself. As it says in verse 16, people swear by something greater than themselves. And God had no one greater. Therefore, he could only swear by himself. There is no one greater than God. And, And in fact, that statement alone, by the way, not even considering the rest of this passage, which is only going to add strength to it, but that statement alone assures us that God will fulfill his promise. Because since there is no one greater than God, that means no one can thwart or hinder or stop God from fulfilling his plans and accomplishing his purposes. Since there's no one greater than God, there is no one who can stop him from fulfilling his promise. And praise God for that. Praise God that he cannot be hindered. Praise God that he is, his plan is not thrown off by our unfaithfulness, our sin, our failures. It's not thrown off by the opposition of the world, the flesh, or the devil. God's promise will be fulfilled because there is no one greater than God. No one can threaten him or stop him from doing what he chooses to do. <clears throat> so God swore by himself because he's the greatest being that there is, but that still doesn't answer the question, why did God swear in the first place? Well, let's, let's think about this. Why do people swear an oath? Have you ever done that when you're telling somebody you're going to do something and they're like, are you sure you're going to do it? And you say something, I promise or I swear I'm going to do that. People do that to strengthen the promise or the word that they're giving. They, they do it to add weight to the truthfulness of what they're saying. As you know, whenever you're testifying in a court of law, you swear an oath that you're going to say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And when people swear by something greater than themselves, of course, in our country, we, we say what? So help me God, right? I, I, I swear by God, in essence, is what we're saying. When you swear by a deity, what you're saying is, if what I'm saying is not true, if I do not come through on this, may God himself punish me. That's what someone's saying when they're swearing by something greater than themselves. So what was God saying? When he said, I swear by myself. Well, in essence, God's saying, may I cease to be God if I do not fulfill this promise. That's how seriously God is saying this promise is going to be fulfilled. I will swear upon my very nature and character as God that I will do this. He was telling Abraham that his promise was doubly certain, doubly sure. Now, verse 13 is referring to what happened in Genesis 22. There, Abraham, as you know, was told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering to the Lord. So Abraham, in sorrowful obedience, took his son up on a mountain, and he prepared uh, the wood for a fire, and he tied Isaac's hands and feet, and then raised a knife to cut his throat and kill him and offer him as a burnt offering to the Lord. And then the angel of the Lord intervened and stopped him, And then the Lord provided a ram in the place of Isaac, in essence saying, kill this beast instead of Isaac. So he was killed in substitute, a beautiful uh, foreshadowing, of course, of what Christ did for us. But after that happened, so Isaac, excuse me, Abraham was just about to kill Isaac. The angel of the Lord stopped him. The ram came. Abraham sacrificed the ram instead. And then this happened. Pardon me. Look at verses 15 through 18 of Genesis 22. It'll be on the screen as well. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, 
Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God said, by myself I have sworn I will surely bless and I will surely multiply you. That's why it says in Hebrews that God swore by himself. God simply didn't simply tell Abraham, I will do this. He said, I swear I will do this. I, upon my uh, character and nature and existence as God, I will do this. As surely as he is God, he will fulfill his promise. And God did keep his promise to Abraham. It didn't happen immediately. It did say that Abraham patiently waited. The promise first given to Abraham that he would have offspring was 25 years in fulfillment before his son Isaac was born. So Abraham did have to wait and wait and wait. But he did obtain the promise. And remember that in verse 12 it says we should be imitators of those who inherited the promise through faith and patience. In other words, not only is Abraham an example of God's trustworthiness, but Abraham is an example of what we go through. Hard times, difficult times, something we're looking forward to. There is a waiting period before God fulfills it. It comes after a long period of waiting. Now, this isn't saying that Abraham earned the promise because he waited. God's not saying, well, if you can wait just a little bit longer, then I'll give it to you. But it is telling us that patience is involved because the promise is not fulfilled immediately. That is God building our faith and our trust in him. These first century believers were wearied by the hostility and persecution they experienced, and they were ready to be done with it. God, please end this. How many of you are ready to be done with this pandemic? God, please end this. Just sweep it away. Take it away. But they had to wait. And the Spirit is telling them the fulfillment of God's promises requires patience on our part. Because God is going to do things in his time, not in ours. And just as God kept his promise to Abraham, the Spirit is saying he will keep his promise to you, first century Jewish believers. And he will keep his promise to you, 21st century believers. Abraham was blessed with a child. He did become the father of multitudes. And in him, all the families of the earth have been blessed because ultimately this promise was fulfilled in the offspring of Abraham named Jesus of Nazareth. He was physically a descendant of Abraham and he accomplished the work of redemption for the whole world. God kept his promise to Abraham so we can trust that God will keep his promise to us. Persevere in trusting Christ because God kept his promise to Abraham and showed himself trustworthy. The text then gives us a second reason to persevere in our trust in Christ. God swore to keep his promise to us. Now, I realize this sounds a lot like the first reason, but the difference is that these next three verses focus more on God's oath and they kind of uh, press more personally. So it's, it's like he takes his focus off of Abraham and goes to to us. So look again with me at verses 16 through 18. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, I mentioned verse 16 earlier. It tells us about the nature of an oath and also the reason for an oath. As I said before, an oath is sworn by something greater than the one swearing. We were already reminded that uh, nothing and no one is greater than God, and that's why he swore by himself. But then it adds this reason that I talked about earlier, that the reason for an oath in the first place is to add final confirmation to what is said. Since that is true, since an oath is final confirmation of a statement, God guaranteed his promise with an oath. Now, the reason is given in this beautiful sentence that follows, or half sentence. You know how the New Testament has really long sentences. But those last several phrases that he gave, he's saying, this is, this is the reason God swore that oath, okay? He wanted, to, he wanted to give you final confirmation, but why did he want to give us final confirmation? Well, here's why. And in brief, the reason is that uh, God swore an oath to show the character of his purpose, but the Spirit added some wonderful and very important words to that concise answer. First of all, it says that God desired to show more convincingly. So God's promise, because of his character as God, God's promise should be enough to assure us, right? If God just said, I'm going to do this, that should be enough. But out of God's concern for us, out of God's tenderness and gentleness toward us, he desired for us to be assured even more convincingly. And so he added this oath. He knew that our faith is weak. He knew that our faith is prone to wavering. So he wanted to bolster our faith by bolstering his promise with an oath. Now, who did he desire to show more convincingly? He said he desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs of the promise? Well, first of all, the heirs of the promise are Abraham and his physical descendants, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 patriarchs, ethnic Jews. So first of all, they are the heirs of the promise. And remember, the book of Hebrews was written to, uh, toward a Jewish audience. So he is saying, you guys who are physical descendants of Abraham, you are heirs to his promise. And God wanted you to be more fully convinced that he's going to do what he said he would do. <clears throat> In addition to the Jews, however, praise God forevermore, you and I and everyone who trusts in Christ are also heirs of the promise. Galatians 3.29 says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All of us who have put our faith in Christ have been made Abraham's offspring and heirs. Therefore, we can say we are heirs to the promise given to Abraham. And 2 Corinthians 1.20 adds that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. So if you are a child of God, if you have put your faith in him, you are united to him, you inherit the promises of Abraham and all the promises of God find their fulfillment in him, fulfillment in him and therefore you receive the benefits of that. God is telling you that he wants you to be more fully convinced of his word. He wants you to be more fully convinced of his promise because when you're going through a trial, when your emotions are absolutely at the pit, it will feel like God is not faithful. It will feel like God is not good. And it may feel like maybe this Christian faith is not what it's cracked up to be. And God is saying, I want you, my precious child, to be more fully convinced. So I am adding my oath to this promise that I have given. <clears throat> he wanted us to be convinced of the unchangeable character of his purpose. 
God's purpose is to bless believers through the offspring of Abraham, which, of course, is Jesus, the, the, the one offspring through whom that blessing comes to the world. The promise encompasses forgiveness of sins, union with Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and ultimately full and final redemption from sin and suffering. That purpose will not change, and God wanted to make sure that we were convinced that it wouldn't change, so he guaranteed the promise with an oath. We can trust in the promise of God because it's built on two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath. He promised it, and he swore that it would happen. It is impossible for God to lie. What a beautiful statement that is. It is impossible for God to lie. You and I and every other person in this room we lie, we deceive, we give in to temptation, we fail, we disappoint, but our God, the one in whom we have placed hope, the one in whom we stand for our salvation, it is impossible for him to lie. And so he doubly secured his promise by saying, I will do it, and I swear that I will do it. I swear by myself. God's certain promise strengthens us to hold on to the hope set before us. And before I talk a minute about the hope set before us, I love that phrase. He says that uh, by two unchangeable things, we uh, who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge is, is referring to everyone who comes to the Lord in faith. Now, think about what you're fleeing from. Why would someone flee to the Lord for refuge. Well, when we come to the Lord in faith, we're fleeing from slavery to sin. We're fleeing from the weariness of self-righteousness. We're fleeing from the guilt and shame of lawlessness. Everything that weighs us down, beats us down, and condemns us, that, that's what we're fleeing from. And God provides a safe and wonderful refuge for us. So he's encouraging us by this oath-bound promise to hold on to the hope set before us. The hope set before us is eternal life, full and final salvation. Now, it is true that everyone who trusts in Christ is immediately transferred from the kingdom of darkness, from the kingdom of light. You are immediately forgiven of your sins. You are immediately given the righteousness of Christ. You are immediately adopted into the family of God. You are immediately indwelt by the, by the Spirit. And you are immediately from thenceforth and forever experiencing eternal life. But what I'm talking about is the level of eternal life we're going to experience in the next life. <clears throat> so perhaps a better way of understanding the hope set before us is to look at it as full, perfect communion with the living God. Living in total freedom from sin and suffering and experienced unbounded joy in the unveiled presence of God. God is telling you and me this morning to hold on to that be strengthened to hold on to that. Be strengthened by the certainty of God's promise. Don't let fear or doubt or weariness draw you away from Christ. Stand on the certain promise of God and persevere in trusting Christ. You may think about turning back, but the Spirit of God is telling you today that you will reach your destination. If you are a child of God, He is going to bring you finally to the end, to a safe harbor forever. God's promise and his oath strengthen us to persevere in our faith in Christ. We, because we know that we will be brought to full and final salvation, full and final deliverance, it encourages us, it motivates us to continue on. Think about this. When you were learning to ride a bicycle, you fell. 
you hurt your knee, you got frustrated, you cried, but you kept going because you knew that eventually you would get there. Eventually you were going to be able to ride a bicycle. And in the same way, God is saying, because I'm telling you for sure that you're going to reach your destination, that motivates or inspires us to carry on. Okay, yes, I'm going to get there because the Lord himself has promised us. The final reason to persevere in trusting Christ is this. Hope founded on God's promise is an anchor for our souls. We've been talking about it really since March, <clears throat> but 2020 has been an extremely difficult year. This church in particular has faced challenges and experienced losses that we couldn't have imagined a year ago. But 2020 hasn't necessarily been the worst year of your life, and it's quite possible that you will experience worse years in the future. As followers of Jesus, we know that it is his work that saves us. But when you receive a shock to your soul, when, when your world is turned upside down, you're tempted to waver in that trust. You're tempted to think that perhaps God is not good, or that God does not have your best interest in mind, or that God is not sufficient to meet the problems at hand. When you experience death or divorce or disease, it can feel like Jesus isn't really coming through for you. But your Father in heaven is telling you to keep trusting. Keep trusting because your hope in Christ anchors your soul. During those times when your emotions are at the very bottom and your wisdom seems to have fled. Look at verses 19 and 20 once again. We have this, referring back to that hope we just mentioned, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the, the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God's promise guaranteed by his oath <clears throat> strengthens us to hold firmly to our hope, and that hope is our soul's anchor. That hope is a sure and steadfast anchor because God's promise is sure and steadfast. God doesn't lie and God doesn't change, so hope that rests on his promise cannot be shaken. It cannot be moved. You will experience doubt in this life. You will experience disappointment in God in this life. You will experience the feeling of despair in this life. But if you are united to Christ by faith, you will not be severed from him. Your anchor will hold because it is not based upon you. It is not based upon your faithfulness. It is not based upon your emotions. It is not based upon the strength of your faith. It is based upon the faithfulness and strength and character of the living God. <clears throat> the writer adds that our hope enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What he's talking about there is the most holy place, or the older versions say the, the holy of holies. It was the innermost section of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was housed, and it was so sacred that only one man in the entire nation could even go in there. That was the high priest, and, only, and he could only enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> because that was the place where God would manifest his visible glory. And so it was, it was beyond the reach of, of a normal human person. <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews is saying that our hope 
This hope founded on God's sure promise, this hope that is our anchor, our hope has entered the very throne room of God. Just as, in a sense, the Holy of Holies was the physical representation on earth, the true Holy of Holies is the throne of God looking upon his unveiled face. Our hope has entered that most holy place because our hope is in Christ and Christ has entered that most holy place. He said that he has entered there as a forerunner on our behalf. And then he adds that he became a high priest after the order of Melchizedek because he wants these readers to know, wait a second, only a high priest can enter the most holy place. And now you're talking about the true most holy place. And he says, yes, Jesus was qualified to do that because he is a high priest, not after the Levitical order that is temporary and is composed of men who sin, but the eternal order of Melchizedek, God appointed him as a high priest. So he is qualified to go into that throne room. And as one more encouragement to our certain destination, the Spirit mentions that Jesus has gone there as a forerunner, as I said before, as a forerunner on our behalf. A forerunner is someone who, who runs on ahead, someone who uh, experiences something in advance of others, a scout, if you will. So this scout goes to a place that you're going to go eventually. So by saying that Jesus has entered as a forerunner to this most holy place, the very uh, throne of God looking at his unfailed face, what he's saying is we are going to be brought there as well. So our hope is not only on the promise of God, but our hope is also on this great high priest to whom we are now united who has actually gone to the very throne room of God because he is perfect and holy and qualified for that. Some of the commentators that I read mentioned that this uh, analogy that the writer uses of an anchor, you know, you think about how an anchor is used in real life and someone's on a ship and they throw an anchor that goes down and lodges in the, uh, the seafloor to hold the boat. But our anchor goes up all the way to heaven to the very throne room of God and it is anchored there by our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The main thing that I want to get across to you, I think the thrust of this passage, what God is saying to us is hold on to Jesus because God's promise is certain. Hold on to Jesus because God's promise is certain. Everyone who has trusted in Christ, his perfect, li his perfect life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, everyone who has trusted in Christ will obtain the promise. They will experience full and final salvation. They will one day look at God's unveiled face and be perfectly united to him. We will have full shalom, peace, wellness, security, wholeness, and happiness. It's a God-sworn promise that you can build your life on. Before I close, I do want to touch on this. How? You know, I just said, hold on to Jesus because God's promise is certain. Some of you may be wondering, how? How do I hold on? I am storm-tossed and, and, and wearied and beaten. I'm depressed. I'm despairing. I'm hurting. How do I hold on? Well, for one thing, you keep gathering with the body of Christ, either here or online. I know some of you can't gather in person. You keep gathering with the body of Christ to sing praises to his name, to hear his word preached, to pray to him. <clears throat> you hold on by turning your mind to the certainty of Christ's salvation, confessing truth to yourself in the face of your doubts. Lord, it doesn't feel like this is true, but this is what you said. And you hold on by doing that 50 times a day if you need. 
You hold on by asking a brother or sister in Christ to pray for you, to speak truth into your life when you know you're not feeling that truth. When your faith is at low ebb, lean on the faith of your brother or sister in Christ. When your emotions and your wisdom and, and your, your, your confidence in God just seems to be completely gone, lean on a brother and sister in Christ. Feed off of their confidence, off of their love and concern for you. Hold on to Jesus because God's promise is certain. In the sermon notes and on the screen, I gave you a few suggested responses uh, to this word from God. In the wake of both the, the ongoing COVID troubles and now the, the sudden resignation of our lead pastor, I do want to challenge you to follow through on that third response. Uh, reach out to another believer that's, that's part of FBC and encourage them with the certainty of God's promise. And, and not in a condescending way, not in a superior way. Don't just flippantly toss a verse at them, but offer to pray with them and, and just gently and lovingly remind them that, that God is in control, that God is still on the throne, that his promise is still sure. I've been in a few meetings with the elders this past week, and uh, on more than one occasion, an elder has has interrupted the conversation to say something like, to, something like that, to re-strengthen us in our faith in Christ, to refocus our gaze on our Lord and Savior, because that's where our hope comes from. So if you've been strengthened by today's message, ask the Spirit to help you do that this week. Now I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment, and as I do that, if the uh, prayer team would come forward, uh, as we do every week, there'll be people up here at the front that'll be available to pray with you. Again, if you're still just trying to process all that's gone on this past week, if, if you're hurting, grieving, confused, angry, sad, whatever, uh, we would love to pray with you and encourage you any way we could. Let's go to the Lord. Gracious God, you are, you are our Father. And, and we don't deserve that, Lord, but, but out of your great love, you have adopted us into your family through your son. And now you care for us as a beloved child, not just similar to the way earthly fathers do, but far, far better because you are a perfect father, always loving, always true, always faithful. God, I ask for your mercy and grace on all those who are gathered with us this morning, either in person or online, I pray that you would strengthen them in their faith in you. And Lord, if they're going through a hard time, I pray that you would remind them of the certainty of your promise. You are the rock on which we stand. Help us to persevere in trusting you when we don't feel like it, when it doesn't seem to have any effect, to continue trusting in your oath-bound promise. Thank you, Lord for the gathering of your body. Thank you for the presence of your spirit. Thank you for your faithful love. I pray for a special measure of grace on all of these believers today. In your holy name, amen.